That psalm, it is when he goes, surely God is good to Israel. That's how he starts the psalm. Surely God is good to Israel. He is so amazing to anyone who fears him. This is our God. He is amazing. And then he tells you, but here is how my feet almost slipped. Here is how I almost fell away from the Lord. I got my eyes off of the Lord and I was looking to the world. And when I looked to the world, I saw that they never were hungry. I saw they were always fat and happy. And guess what? They never hurt. They never had pains like I have. All these terrible things are happening to me. But then ultimately what happens, he steps into the sanctuary of God. So we get the end beautiful ending right at the beginning and then you see the meat of what's going on and what was taking place and a lot of people believe that that was written during the Babylonian captivity and when we look back at that and see all the things that were taking place we have those times where it's like Psalm 73 where we see the victory that happens in that psalm and then we have the imprecatory psalms where you have psalms literally written cursings against what is going on to them at the people that are coming against them and when I see in Psalm 73 them knowing what he's saying is going on that they they never thirst they never hunger they never have the pains that I have and everything I'm going through but then he's because his feet almost slipped he almost fell away from that But guess what, then he says, I stepped into the sanctuary of God and then I recognized their end. Ultimately, he saw the end. And I I think this is really important even when we're looking at this because when we do, and I love comparative religion. I love comparing the truth against that which is false. I love comparing Islam, the God of Islam, which is a false God, it's not a real God, with the true God of the Bible. I love comparing even the God of Jehovah's Witness, a works-based religion with false teaching, they rip apart the Bible only to put their own interpretations in it and then call it a translation. I look at the God of Mormonism where it takes women and objectifies them as continual mothers where they're just giving birth for all eternity and that it's just so false. But then I also love to look at, and I know Joe did an entire teaching on this, so I won't go back to it, but the Bible among the myths at that time. And one of the key criterias at that time was the cyclical nature of the false gods and their systems. And there's a great book, and I interviewed his author, and I know uh, Joe says the same thing as myself. He's one of my favorite authors, and I was so blessed. One of the only guys I've ever been nervous to interview, uh, and he was one of the nicest, sweetest men. And I was only nervous because I'm like, this guy really loves Jesus, you know, and he really cares about holiness. And I've read so much of his material. I think he's an amazing man. His name is Dr. John Oswald, and he wrote the book, The Bible Among the Myths, and, and it's a book that Joe and I would definitely suggest if you never if you wanted to read on the subject but the cyclical nature means that it would just continue and cycle okay and in fact second peter chapter 3 talks about this when it talks about the end times mockers that all things have always been the same they're always going to be the same not understanding there is a culmination. That's one of the biggest differences when we contrast biblical Christianity versus all of the false gods. The Judeo-Christian God, Yahweh in the Old Testament against the false gods. The cyclical nature that it's just cycling through and cycling and starting over and so forth. That's not our God. We have a culmination that we're looking forward to over and over again. We're looking forward to that. And God has been in search of a bride. And that's why I love, as I said, to do what Psalm 73 does and start from 
that glorious fact that we have something awesome waiting for us. This isn't a cycle. We're not gonna go through it. We're not gonna die and maybe you know, become a fly or a bug or a caterpillar or, some, or something. No, 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 that's not what's happening. It actually, it's very clear, the Bible says, it's a point a man wants to die and then comes the judgment. That, that, that's what we have. But ultimately for us, we have glory awaiting us not cyclical. We have an end that we all look forward to. In fact, when we talk about the helmet of salvation, the way that 1 Thessalonians puts it, it puts it right there as when we put on the helmet of salvation, it's the recognition of the Lord's return. I talk about this sometimes when there's two brothers or sisters that are fighting. One of the things I think about is that we're going to be with the Lord forever one day. And having the helmet of salvation on that is recognizing that one day we're going to be with the Lord. And we're gonna do it together. So yes, there may be some fighting right now, but we both love the Lord and we're gonna be together forever. And so that's something to come into any sort of disagreement or meeting one with another. Because having on that helmet of salvation and recognizing that one day the Lord is coming back because he always answers his promises. He never goes back on him every single time. We don't have a God that shifts. We don't have a God that moves. We don't have a God that we go, oh no, I hope, he's, I hope he's not mad today when he woke up on the wrong side of the bed. That's not my God. He never changes. He is always good. But in Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse seven, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I love that. His bride has made herself ready. That is who we are. We are Christ's bride and we are to make ourselves ready. We are to look forward to that return. We are to continue in the faith. We are to over and over again be overcomers through him who loves us. That's why the Bible calls, says very clearly in Romans chapter eight that we are more than conquerors, not in our own. We, apart from Christ, we can do nothing according to Jesus in John chapter 15. We can do nothing, but through him who loves us, we are more than conquerors. And we do that because we are kept by the power of God. And it is his salvation and his power that keep us when we plug into it by faith. In our faith, we, we look to him in our faith and we plug into the power of God. It never changes. It's always, he is eternal. We plug right into him and we are kept by the power of God through faith. And through that faith, we make ourselves ready, continue to grow in sanctification. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That, that word hagias, sanctification. Without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. We become more and more like Jesus. That is our predestination for all those in Christ is that we become more and more like Jesus. And in doing so, we are the bride that makes ourselves ready. We, become, we are overcomers through him who loves us. Verse eight, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints then he said to me right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are true words of God I love that you know when you see Jesus over and over speaking he's always truly truly I say unto you 
And actually, uh, when he enacted the new covenant in John 14, and he gave them the, the, the sup, he gave them the bread and the wine, and they partook in the new covenant, he said that he goes to prepare a place for them. And he tells them, I wouldn't tell you this if it wasn't true. That's basically what he tells them. I would not be telling you that I'm going to prepare a place for you if I wasn't going to do it. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing right now. And I love uh, that Keith Green line. You'd think maybe because John uh, Heber's not here, I'd have to talk about Keith Green for him. Uh, But nonetheless, um, you know, that Jesus Christ, he, he, you know, God created this whole earth in in six days. Imagine what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years, preparing a place for us. I can't wait. That's my God. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. As I said, I I like to get the ending a little bit before we even get to what happened and how God was looking for this bride because now we look at the new heaven and new earth. This is after the millennial kingdom. Yes, we believe the Bible is literal and we believe in a pre-millennial reign, a post-tribulational rapture which takes place before the millennium. Now, if somebody believes in a pre-trib rapture, they also are what's called pre-mill, which was the doctrine of the early church, without a doubt. In fact, okay, I can't get down this rabbit hole, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, it, it's really interesting. Uh, I, was, I was studying uh, Dr. Craig Evans' uh, book, Jesus in the Manuscripts, and one of the things that he talked about that was really interesting was Eusebius, and Eusebius was one of the first church historians, not first church fathers, but one of the first church historians, and he did so at the request of Constantine, because Constantine um, was for Rome now saying, what do the Christians believe? And he was going to tell them. And when he did that, um, he did something really interesting, and one of which uh, we call it situational theology, and that takes place when someone decides that their situation is going to dictate how they view scripture. And that has taken place over and over again when it comes to just the millennium alone because what happens is, think about this, you're looking at the church being decimated for 325 years of just being mowed down and mowed down and mowed down with waves of persecution, with people being uh, you know, fed to lions in the Colosseum, uh, with young uh, maidens, young virgin women being raped by wild beasts. Uh, the things that were taking place to the early church for 300 years looked pretty radical. And for many people, they looked at that as a parallel to what was going on in the book of Revelation. When you see all these terrible things taking place on the earth. And so next thing you know, when you have peace and you're no longer running and hiding in catacombs, you go, wait a second. Maybe we're in Revelation 20, in this peace where Satan is bound. And that's what took place. And I would also argue that Eusebius um, probably looked at Constantine and was like, yeah, I don't want you to look like the Antichrist here. Um, I would guess that that was probably part of that as well. And so one of the things that he tries to do is distance, because we have the early church fathers. Those are uh, typically the pre-Nicene fathers, specifically when we talk about Irenaeus or Justin Martyr. But we also have the apostolic fathers, and those guys were the ones that came directly from the apostle, and specifically the apostle John. We have Polycarp, Ignatius, and then Papias. And what um, Eusebius does with Papias is tries to distance himself from John the Apostle because he didn't want the early church, the, very, the disciple of the disciple, 
to be saying that there's a premillennial reign that's going to take place, that it's a premillennial um, situation. He wanted amillennialism. Um, and then obviously Augustine would push that forward. But nonetheless, that's not what the teaching is about, but I couldn't help but state it. Um, but when we get to Revelation 21, we get the new heaven, new heavens and the new earth. And it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from, the, voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that. You know, um, this last weekend, uh, I, I don't know how it came up, but I was explaining how uh, my best friend, uh, who was the best man at my wedding, how he passed away. And it was, you know, I, I hadn't been emotional like that in a long time uh, when I was explaining it. And it was something that, you know, afterwards, you know, thinking of that pain of losing somebody, I just thought to myself, and I was thinking about, uh, there's a Jeremy Camp song, you know, there will be a day. Uh, when no more tears, you know, and no more pain, no more sorrow. And I was thinking about that song, and I was thinking about losing people I love, and I'm going to lose more people I love and I care about. And I was thinking about that, but I was thinking about in light of the fact that we don't have a cyclical God. We have a culminating God, a God that's culminating all of existence, everything that he's brought forth in creation, that we have this culmination of the new heavens and the new earth, that he is gonna dwell among us forever. We don't have to have that situation that the apostles did where he says, it's better that I leave. I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit for you, but it's better that I go, but that we actually get to be uh, like John clinging to the bosom of Jesus. And we get to be next to him and cling to him and he'll, he'll dwell amongst us. I love that. And he who sits, verse five, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. You see, as believers, uh, it, as I said, I, I do love contrasting uh, different religions. And as believers, we don't simply, uh, we aren't simply servants in heaven, uh, but we're actually adopted as sons. And, you know, when it comes to the religion such as Islam, they don't believe that you can ever be a child of God. They do all these prayers and all these alms and have all these rules and legislation that they have to do. And ultimately, the only thing they can ever do is simply be a servant. But we cry out, Abba, Father, and we have adoptions as sons. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. Oh, man, it's just so glorious. It's just not even, it's embarrassing to compare it. I mean, I, I, I look at that and I think of the sadness, and it reminds me of the prodigal son. You know, I've written a track, and hopefully Tony is listening because he's supposed to finish the artwork on that um, and, and get that done. But nonetheless, uh, and it's called The Prodigal Muslim. And we look at the story of the prodigal son, and if you remember what happens when he wants to return, he comes and says what? I'll come and be a servant. 
This is all, all, this is all I'll be accepted as. And of course, logically, that makes sense. You threw away your birthright. You pretty much died that day to him. You're dead to me, Father. I, don't, I just want my inheritance, and I don't want you in my life. And he says, I, I, I'm, I'm going to come back. I'm going to get out of this mire. I'm going to get out of this the, the eating with the pigs next to their feces, and I'm going to go, at least I can be a servant. I'll have food there. And he goes to, to be a servant, and what does the prodigal, the, the, the prodigal son does for the father? He throws a party. And, you know, for vegetarians, notice it's not a, a fatted cauliflower. It's a fatted calf. It's, you know, probably, you know, some good prime rib or just, just kidding. I don't mean to offend, you know, Romans 14 and all, but, but nonetheless. Um, uh, but seriously, you know, he throws a party. He puts a ring around his finger. He's, in the parable, it's the only time you see God running and he runs after him. He hugs him and he kisses him, you know. That's my God. That's the God that's culminating in the fact that he is the bridegroom and I am now part of the bride, that we now get to be part of this bride. Welcome in by him. I, I just, I love that. And we get to play uh, a part in, in this mystery. In fact, go to Ephesians chapter five with me. I love this text and, and it, it really is such a, an amazing text and we talk about, uh, and people say it's a Christian word, the word mystery, uh, because it's used so often here, even in the book of Ephesians, used over and over and over again. But uh, in this specific context, uh, starting at verse 25, we're going to look at when it comes to marriage and what marriage is supposed to look like. And I, I, I will point this out, that right here it talks about marriage. Uh, earlier in the chapter, it talks about being imitators of God, but then it talks about marriage. It talks about uh, specifically right after this children and then you have this all tied together right next to probably the most profound uh, text concerning spiritual warfare. And it's right there in the family. And for anyone uh, who has done uh, mission work or been sharing the gospel or loving someone else and hopefully trying to bring them to Christ, I, I'm sure for you and, and not just for me, the attacks on the family are something that are so prevalent whenever you want to do something for the Lord. Uh, the enemy tries to get a foothold in your family's life to hinder you from ministry, to hinder you from being a great example to the outside world so that when they see your marriage, they see your family, they see all the things that you're doing alongside of them, the love that you have that is different than the outside world, that they would then be required to ask the question, why is it like this? Why are you different than everyone else? Why, is your, why does your family love each other? Why do you care about them so much? Why is this family unit so tight and it's tied around things that matter? And it's ultimately because then we can give the answer for and the defense for the hope that we have that is different than the rest of the world. And we have that because we get to play this part in this great mystery. Starting at verse 25, and I'm, and I'm sure, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, I'll start, at, I'll start at verse 25. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, for sinless perfectionist, I would love to know how you're doing that. Um, that would be just wonderful for you to tell me how that's going for you. But nonetheless, it is a, something that we should strive after, that that should be our goal, ultimately, to be like Jesus. And I, I know that's, that, this is somewhere I fail, and I, and I, I need to be better and grow in sanctification uh, towards my lovely wife. Verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, 
having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Look at how it's tied to the word of God, the washing of the word of God. Tie that in also to uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. It is God's word that is clean. It's God's word that cleans us. It's God's word over and over that we're supposed to wash our wives in, that we are supposed to grow in. It starts here in God's word. When this is neglected, you know that sanctification is not taking place. When somebody thinks that, you know, I, I, I'm doing fine, I just pray to God, everything's fine. There's a reason you're not becoming more and more like Jesus because when Jesus faced the devil, Jesus said, for it is written. When Jesus faced the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said, for it is written. And over and over again, if you want to start and you want to have a life that is not only bent towards Christ, but a life that has victory, it is only going to start and also finish with the word of God. He is the one right here in his word that his word has a cleansing power to our lives, that we should be meditating on it day and night, and we will be like the tree planted against the water that bears fruit in its season, and if we do not, we will be like the chaff that is broken off when the wind blows by, because we sit at the seat of scoffers. We meditate on the very things that God hates. We watch movies that God does, does, hates the very things that are taking place in it, and we're watching it and laughing and joking about it. We listen to the music, and hopefully when I say we, I don't actually mean us or yourself, but so many people are listening to music, watching movies. The very things that they have their most enjoyment in is not the word of God, is not singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in their heart to the Lord, but it's the very things that Jesus Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross for. And, and because of that, the sanctifying power of God coming out spotless and blameless without a wrinkle is not taking place because the word of God is not at the standard, at the authority that Christ has placed it at. And this is the starting point for anyone who wants to have victory in Christ, if who wants to have victory in sin, who's struggling with pornography, who's struggling with anger and outbursts, who's struggling with, if it's thievery, and some people think, oh, that's because I'm stealing from stores. No, maybe it's your taxes, you know? Maybe, maybe you're not actually, you know, being honest about certain things. Maybe you're a waiter who doesn't put in your tips or whatever it may be. And all of these things, just to, to start with, starting at that place, we need to go back to the word of God because if I am going to have victory over and over again, it is going to start and finish with the word of God because ultimately who's the one who wrote it? It's the God of the word. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, it says, spoke through men. He led them. Every word is theonoustos. God breathed, inspired by him and it's what? Useful for correction for reproof, for the training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. That's our goal. Uh, verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. I love that because so many people can look at that and think, oh yeah, of course there's some application there. Like, we all love a good meal, right? We all love some good food, right? Amen? I, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good plenty of times. And, and we do love that, and it's a reality. But what's, what's the purpose here? 
because Christ also does his church. Christ cherishes his church. Christ nourishes his church. This is what I have in Christ, is that he nourishes me, that he cherishes me, this, this body, that he's been building this up, that Christ has been looking for a bride. And here's what it, here's what it says after that. Because we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery, this mystery is great. Mystery is great. Mega musterion. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Isn't it amazing, whether uh, you are, are married right now or not, that you get to play a part in this, that you get to be live action figures for what Christ has done and this relationship that we have with him that will culminate when we will have the marriage supper of the lamb, that culmination, that God that is going to culminate in our wedding day, that we get to look at this and say we get to play a part in this and we get to be an example so that others will see us and say, I want Jesus. I want that. That relationship, what is this? I know plenty of couples who have, uh, that people have looked at and say, what is that? What, where did you get that? You know, what is that, that like? I want that. I want that life. And guess what? What do we always turn them to? Whatever you do in your body, and that includes eating, that includes drinking, and that includes your marriage, should be done for the glory of the Lord. Everything that we do. And we get to partake in this and be God's example. And so this is God's purpose for us. This is his goal for those who are married. But guess what? Even if you aren't married, the Bible is very clear. Second Corinthians chapter 11 said, you have been betrothed to one Christ. That God says you are betrothed. And that's similar in this day and age to an engagement. It obviously had more legal binding back then. Joseph and Mary were betrothed but you weren't culminating that marriage in, in, the, in, in the consummation. And that takes place for us as the body of believers at the end with that helm of salvation, looking forward to that day when the bride gets to be with his bridegroom. You know, my, my son, my firstborn, uh, Eli, uh, we, we call him Eli, but his full name is Eleazar. And the reason uh, we wanted to name him Eleazar is because in the Old Testament, and, you know, uh, even if Joe's sick, we have to do a little typology, you know. Um, and uh, when it comes to Eleazar, you get his name in Genesis 15 too, but you get his actions right after that, where what takes place is he is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And actually, Eleazar, the very name, means helper of God. And that is what the Holy Spirit is, right? Jesus said he would send forth his helper to us. And what does Eleazar do? Eleazar goes and gets the bride for Isaac. And I'm sure you guys all remember the beautiful picture of Isaac, right? Being the sacrifice, being a picture of Jesus as the sacrifice, but ultimately God would provide a lamb, and that lamb was provided in the person of Jesus Christ, the same one that John the Baptist in John chapter one has said specifically what? That the lamb of God, and in Mark chapter one as well, that the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, 
that that's, that's our Jesus. But Eleazar was a picture of the one who goes and gets the bride. And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit has been doing for 2,000 years. The Holy Spirit has been going and getting the bride. That is what he's been doing. And it's, it is amazing to look at that picture and to see him go to Rebecca and, and see him give gifts, really interesting, to, the, uh, to, her, to her brother and her father, and then goes and gets the bride uh, for Isaac. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's getting us. He's getting the bride. And that's, that's our job too. Those of us filled with the Holy Spirit need to be going out and, and fulfilling that great commission that, that Christ has given us. Each and every one of us, if you're a blood-bought believer, at the moment of salvation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 17 through 21, is very clear that you, if you are a new creation, and if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, then you now have a job. You're an ambassador. You're a reconciler. That you would be pleaded with people to be reconciled to God. That you would go forth and, and preach that gospel. And, and man, I, I gotta be honest, sometimes when I'm sharing the gospel, all I feel like I'm doing is just bragging about Jesus. I mean, I mean, really, that's all, that's all I'm doing. I, you know, I, I got my hair cut before I came here because I looked like a ragamuffin, uh, and I, w- I was getting my hair cut, and uh, the guy cutting my hair was um, pretty flamboyant, and um, they're, uh, they're, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, how do you dress this, or it's difficult for me to, to share. I'm like, yeah, the, the, the guy who cut my hair before that was probably fornicating, you know? Like, th- this guy needs the gospel. And I felt like for, you know, a half hour, because it took a little longer than I was used to, um, he was sitting there, and I was bragging about Jesus, you know? And obviously he had disagreements, but I take my time to brag about my Lord. That, what, what else is it, you know? Then sitting there, think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4, right? Jesus goes to, to the, the woman at the well. This is a Samaritan woman. People go, oh, yeah, and he never called out her sin. Yes, he did. It's like you're living with someone who's not your husband, in fact, how did she witness? She went and said, hey, he knows everything about me. He knew my sin. This is not the Messiah, is it? And yes, he is. And they all believed, but then they said, guess what? Jesus then came. So she delivered the message, but ultimately Jesus came after that. And that's why, well, we no longer have to believe just because of her word. I believe now because of Jesus. And what do we do but brag about Jesus and bring the word of God to them? Because it never comes back void. It always has a purpose. God will always use it. And we have this hope, and I've been thinking about this, and, I, and, and coming into tonight, not necessarily prepared to teach, um, but, you know, I'll try to always stay prepared. But I was thinking about it because I had done a story on, um, on one of the Good Fight shows this week while we were in Mexico, and it was so sad. It, it was a, a 28-year-old man who took his own life, and uh, yes, uh, Avicii was a, and it actually from a story from 2018, but a documentary is coming out about it. And it broke my heart because he had, um, had all this terrible pancreatitis that took place because of the copious amounts of alcohol that he was drinking. And, and so he was in pain all the time. So they put him on pain meds and then he got terribly addicted to those and he became emaciated. He looked absolutely horrendous where he couldn't even go out in public. And he has some of the most popular songs. In fact, most of the TikToks or, you know, Instagram videos that you see where people are jumping out of stuff and, you know, doing extreme videos, a lot of them play his, you know, song. 
uh, or different ones as well. But, you know, it, it was breaking my heart. I looked at some of the lyrics to some of the songs and they just have no real hope. All of them lead you to no hope whatsoever. And uh, instead of looking to the Lord uh, towards the end of his life, he actually went to the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the same one that was looking at his teachings. He's already passed away, but he was the same one that was leading, uh, that the Beatles followed, the Beach Boys and so forth. And they talked about how dark it really was for him at the end. And that he tried to go on these vacations, that they were terrible. He said he tried to find doctors that would allow him to continue to drink. So he would go to doctor after doctor, and they would tell him no. But then finally he went to a doctor that would tell him, yeah, it's okay to drink. I'm like, how many people, it says they, you know, believers, uh, it says they heap for themselves teachers who tell them what they want to hear. And I was like, wow, what a vivid uh, representation of that in the world. Like, I'll find a doctor that agrees with me. I'll, I'll find that doctor that says I can do this. But ultimately, he was trying to find some sort of transcendental meditation. And um, whatever it led to, it led to him taking his own life. But I looked at a lot of the lyrics of those songs, and I just saw a lack of hope. The hope that they offered were that your memories will live on. The hope that is offered is that if you have these great nights with your friends, then those memories will live on. But the truth is, most people had forgotten about him until a documentary was coming out, and he had m millions of followers with songs with two billion views. And people go, what was that guy's name again? And when we look at it, uh, so many things, people try to manufacture eternality. They try to manufacture this idea, these immortality projects, I believe as Dr. Clay Jones calls them, these immortality projects. You know, Albert Einstein said, I'll live on through my children. I'm like, I bet you his great-great-grandchildren don't even really know or care who he is. You know, there's a, a, a Biola professor, I know he asks his students, you know, can you name me your great-great-great-grandfather? And none of them typically can, you know. I mean, now at least they got some ancestry thing, but, you know, maybe they took a test uh, or, or something. But do you, and, and, you know, what about your great-great? What about your great-grandfather and so forth? And some of them say yes, you know, here and there, but typically do you care? And the truth is, for those who are not in Christ, does it really make a difference for you? When you have somebody who's impacted you, it's one thing. Impacted you for eternity, it's one thing. That we get, you, the fact that we get to be with Jesus forever and somebody has some impact. I read the works of C.T. Studd. His, his writings have had a major impact on me. I, I, I've watched sermon after sermon and, and read books from Leonard Ravenhill who passed away in 1994 and, and had a radical um, change in my life and the way I walk with Christ. There's some eternal fruit that's born. But for most people, these immortality projects and living on through your children, most of them will not care. The only thing that will ultimately matter is what we do for Christ. And, and that is something that I will always sing. I will always sing that song I will always play that poem. I will always look at that idea that the only thing that will ever matter in this life is what you have done for Christ. That's the only thing that's gonna last in this life and go on. You know, when it comes to even your, your working out, right? That's what, that's what the Bible says. When it comes to physical lifting and, and working out and training, that ultimately there is some value in it in this life. But there's no value in the next life to come. But the spiritual training is one that will give a value for this life and the life to come. But it's interesting because this is the culmination. 
this bridegroom, this no spot, no wrinkle, the fact that we as the new covenant believers get to partake in and be a part of the new covenant and get to be, play a part for those who are married in the mystery of Christ and that people get to see that and say, wow, what is this? And then you can go forth and explain it and share the gospel with people in such a way. And people, I, I heard that saying, I think they, it was Francis uh, Sissy and uh, he said, you know, preach the gospel, oh, of a sissy, sorry. Preach the gospel always and sometimes use words. And I, I think I heard it, uh, you know, flipped on its head, you know, feed the poor always and sometimes use food. Because the gospel is words, you know? When you share the gospel, you're sharing words. You know, a, a Mormon can do a lot of really nice things and share a false gospel. But for us, we have the true gospel of Jesus Christ and we want others to know the bridegroom. We want others to be a part of the bride. All those beautiful things we read, we don't want to see people fall by the wayside. We don't want to see some people miss out on eternity. Right after Revelation 21, when it talks about the new heavens and new earth, for the first seven verses, right after that, but then for the cowards, the abominable, sexually immoral, the liars, the thieves, the adulterers, all of those things, their place will be in the lake of fire which burns forever. So we see that that is what is, not only are they going to miss out on the new heavens and the new, or, new earth where joys and pleasures forevermore with Christ Jesus, but also they will go and get exactly their just dessert. Not that God is some mean, cosmic, you know, poke at people kind of person, but that they are gonna get exactly what they deserve. They committed crimes, they deserve to pay for them just like all of us do. And Jesus, they will either, God the Father will look at them and either see his son Jesus and see Tetelestai, they have been paid in full all of their crimes or they will simply pay for them for all eternity. When we look at it, that's exactly what the gospel tells us. And, and so I don't want anyone not a part of this. My friends, my family, my neighbors, people who hate Christ, people who've mocked me, I don't want any of them to live without Christ. I don't want any of them to miss the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want them all there with us. And I hope you guys have that too, people in your life. There's no way everyone around us knows only believers around them or otherwise, I don't know, maybe you're hiding under a hut. I don't know. But we want people in to know Christ because we know what they're missing out of and also we know what's going to come to them if they don't. The reality is we need to preach the kindness and severity, but sometimes it's just good for believers to glory in the things that we know are coming to us, the things, the pleasures forevermore that, that Christ has for us. This is our God. I, I think about, he's the one who created, you know, every single one of my taste buds, you know? I, I mean, all the, the awesome things, the joy that we have, the fun, the laughs, all of that, he's the one who created it. Can you imagine we could do that for all eternity? Singing, how many times you guys been in worship and, and sung to God and, and just been overcome with emotion? I don't know about you guys, I remember the first time that happened to me as a believer, I was like, what is wrong with me, you know? Like, this is, this is weird, you know? I'm supposed to be like a tough wrestler, you know? I'm not supposed to be crying, what is this, you know? They say, I know I'm an emotional guy, you know? But it was because I was overcome with the reality of what Jesus Christ had done for me. And when I, I look at, as we talked about in the beginning, in the comparative nature, I look at 
this cyclical idea versus a culminating God who's going to culminate everything, and then we get to be part of his bride. I, I had planned on going, but I, I know it's already getting late. I, I, go, I guess I'm going slow. Um, but I, I had planned on looking at, and I guess I'll do a, somewhat of an overview, but when God was looking for his bride, you know, the, the first thing he did, obviously, uh, we could go into Adam and Eve and so forth, but when, when it came to taking a distinct people, uh, it was first with Israel. And when you think about it, what he did with Israel, taking them out of the land of Egypt and then making, him, making them his covenant people. And you think, obviously, of the first two commandments. Um, I, I was, the, the idea of the title had to do with the adultery of idolatry, which is what I had planned on talking about, but I got stuck on just how awesome Jesus is in the new heavens and new earth. But nonetheless... I, I was thinking so, so much about those first two commandments on, on the Ten Commandments. And both of them have to do with idolatry. There's no other God but Yahweh. He is the only God. And you shall worship him. And you shall not form any other false gods, whether created, any created beings, and say, well, this is God, I'm going to worship him. And those are the first two commandments before you get not taking his name in vain and, and honoring the Sabbath and so forth. But you look at those first two commandments and you see this idea that our God is a jealous God. And so many people think of that attribute as like, oh, this bad thing, right? And, and typically, when it's askewed by humanity and by the fallen nature, it is a very bad thing. A, a wrong sort of form of jealousy um, typically ends horrifically. And a lot of times it ends really horrifically for the woman, um, and and it it's usually comes from this fallen nature of man, and a lot of times it's actually pride, especially you look at relationships when the man is this jealous guy, and a lot of times it may become violent and, and wicked, and usually it's because of their pride. That's my woman, right? It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with being uh, a virtuous. You know, Paul talks about a godly jealousy, and that godly jealousy is what God shows us and showcases us in not only the Ten Commandments, but who he is in the Old Testament. Because he wants a bride that is for him and him alone, and not one, as it says in Ezekiel, that opens their legs for every passerby. He wants a, God, he wants a bride that is completely with him and him alone. Because by his very nature, because of who he is, that is what should be commanded. Because if God is God, he is to be worshiped. That's exactly who he is. And so because he is God, because he is deserving of worship, that is what he gets. And he is a jealous God, not only, I believe, for himself and his nature, but also for us. We are created in Imago Dei. We are, we are created in the image of God. God has made us in his image. And so if there is anyone who knows how we best run, it's gonna be God. Gerald in his prayer during, uh, at the end of worship said, his, God's commandments aren't burdensome. They're far good. That was one of the first verses that hit me like a ton of bricks as a new believer. You know, reading through the New Testament, getting to 1 John chapter five, and seeing that the commands that God gives, are, they're not burdensome, actually, Jesus said his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And the commandments that he gives, guess what? When I don't get drunk, I don't get hung over, right? 
so much of sin, the cover-up ends up a lot worse, right? How many, um, how many people have committed sexual immorality and then a baby died because of it, right? Mur- lust and, and murder, and it gives, it gives birth to the next. These commandments, not a single one of these commandments are because God is a cosmic party pooper, right? Every single one of those commandments are for our good. When I don't practice these wicked things, guess what? I don't get injured in those ways. And when I do the things that God tells me I'm to do, I am blessed even if I'm persecuted. That's what I love. No matter what, because of all of these things, because of the culmination of all things, I see and I look forward to that day so that when any of those bad things are happening, on your worst day, you have eternity in mind. As Leonard Ravenhill would say, he stamped eternity on my eyeballs. God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs that I may see with eternal-minded eyes that when I look out, I see the person who is lost next to me for eternity. The fact that they are gonna be lost for all eternity and somebody needs to do something. When I see my brother in Christ that needs to be edified and built up, I have eternal eyes and an eternal mind that looks at him and says, I want him edified. I want him built up. How can I do that? How can I, I better that person's walk as a blood-bought believer? Is it just encouraging word? Is it prayer? Is it sending him encouraging text? Whatever it is, how can I better his walk with Christ because I have an eternal mindset that's different than the rest of the world? It should look a lot different. And when I look back at Exodus and I think of not only the Ten Commandments, not only them saying we will have a covenant with you, right? Because after, cha- after chapter 20, you get the Ten Commandments, then you have Moses going, over, going through all the laws all the way to chapter 32 and what, they're, what it's supposed to look like in their relationship. And I thought this was interesting in light of something um, that Joe kept mentioning because when uh, we got to Mexico, Pastor Jonathan asked if we could kind of sit down with the elders there or um, those who were thinking about becoming elders in his church and go through some of the doctrines, uh, the distinctives of Blessed Hope Chapel. But one of the things that he kept hearkening on is the fear and the love of God, the fear and the love of God and how you can't, you don't want to do too much of one or the other and that so many uh, churches, it's one or the other, when it's really supposed to be both. And I, I know I'm not gonna get to Isaiah because I see him flapping up timestamps up there, but um, it's interesting because I'll make this caveat before, before I read from this text. In the book of Isaiah, one of, the most, one of the most glorious things about the book of Isaiah is the continuity of it. Um, the fact that when you read the book of Isaiah, even though you can see these sections, you know, obviously one through five being intro, but one through 39 and then 40 through 66, and you, and you see these sections of this book, but continuous throughout, and this is throughout chapters, this is throughout the entire book, it's two things put together over and over, and it's judgment and hope, judgment and hope, 
judgment and hope. It just nonstop. You see the judgment that God is gonna bring, but the hope that comes out of it, that ultimately through all of this, God will make Israel a light to the Gentiles. Yes, they've gone wicked. Yes, the Assyrians are gonna take them over, which they did in 722. Yes, Judah will also be taken uh, in 586. They will be taken down and the temple will be run over. All that will take place, but there is something there. God is gonna do something amazing. In fact, the Messiah, the God-man, is gonna come through the Israelites through the seed of Jesse, right? I mean, that's going to take place. I love that. And, and we see that in, in there. So judgment and hope, fear and love, these are the things, and if you asked uh, me as somebody now, like, man, January 19th, 2009, I came to Christ, so January 25th, I think, was my first, uh, 2009 was my first service here at Blessed Hope Chapel, um, and I haven't missed many Sundays um, since then because I've come here to receive the word over and over again and the fear of the Lord but the love of Christ because I can tell you, even brothers I love, I've heard them preach and over and over again you hear one or the other and especially I hear judgment over and over again and I am not one to mince words and you guys who know me, you know I have no problem talking about judgment but if it's not alongside hope, what are we really doing? You know, the same Jesus that called, you know, the Pharisees brood of vipers said, come to me all who are weary, you know. There is a, a fear of God, but there is a love that needs to be so vibrant, and it cannot be a caveat, one or the other. The fear of God cannot be a caveat. It needs to be evident in our life. But so does the love of God, that when somebody sees us, they know we love the Lord. That needs to be first and foremost, because if we are the bride, we need to love the bridegroom. If my, my wife is simply together with me because we have a covenant, that's, that's not much of a marriage. It's not, oh, we just, we have this, you know, this written document, you know, so we hang out a lot. No, I love her. I cherish her. And if we are the bride and he is the bridegroom, it's not simply because I have a piece of paper, the new covenant, right? No, it's because of who he is it's because I've come to find the one whom my soul loves. And guess what? He is a jealous God. And I know for a fact, if I started going out to dinner with some other lady, my wife's gonna be pretty jealous. And I can tell you right now, if my wife started taking out guys to dinner, I'm gonna be a jealous man. And... When it comes to God, you remember chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, 21 through, through 31, goes through all the different things this covenant obligations will take place. What is chapter 32? The honeymoon. And what are they doing on the honeymoon? They're sleeping with the golden calf. They've already left him for someone else. So you have them, not only, by the way, you think about this, uh, the Israelites, even to this day, even those who do not know God, uh, typically, um, even secular Jews will typically write G slash D. They don't like to write the name of God. And you think about when they looked at that golden calf, they called that golden calf the divine name. See, typically names of gods are always attributes, not Yahweh. Yahweh's a name. And it's very interesting because they actually call the golden calf 
Yahweh. And how heartbreaking is that? They use the divine name to call the golden calf Yahweh. And they did that. And God's like, I'm going to wipe them out. This is it. What a great covenant, right? And if God didn't care, right? He'd be like, that's fine. Just, just go with the golden calf. You can worship me that way. That's totally fine. I know your heart's in the right place, you know? No. That means he doesn't really care, right? A jealous God is one who truly loves. A jealous God is one that looks at that and says something has to be done. And Moses says, what? Moses is jealous too. But he's jealous for something a little different. Moses is jealous for God's reputation. They're gonna say that you took them out here just to kill them. He doesn't want them, the God to look terrible to the outside nations, right? And that's exactly what our heart should be as well, all the time. We shouldn't want God to look bad to the outside world. We, I don't want God to look terrible to the outside world because I am not fulfilling my duties as a, a blood-bought believer walking, walking in a manner worthy of the calling that I've been given. I don't want that to take place, and we should all have that heart. So then he goes, right, and God does forgive them after the request of Moses. And it's interesting because, and, and I'll do a little wrap up here, but it's interesting because you have these different time periods. You have the tabernacle period before the first temple, right? Where they were tabernacle. They would literally make kind of a makeshift temple, right? That would ultimately culminate eventually after Israel become, becomes a nation, has a, or they have a nation, but they have a king. Uh, the king is Saul, but then David, David fortifies, he does a lot of great things, but he's not allowed to build the temple, right? Because he has too much blood on his hands. But then his son, Solomon, is allowed to build the temple. So the first temple is then built and the people of God worship there and so forth, or they, um, you know, the sacrifice takes place there uh, and nonetheless. But then Solomon, right? Jeroboam, um, one of his uh, commanders, the, the temple or the, the nation of Israel is split into the, the northern and the southern tribe. So the northern tribe is Jeroboam, the southern tribe is Judah, which is Rehoboam, and they were worshiping there uh, in Jerusalem. I've actually been to Dan, where they would typically in the northern Israel, where they would actually form their own place. We'll do our worship up here. We don't need to worship like God tells us to worship. We're gonna do it up here uh, and so forth uh, until eventually the northern uh, tribe is taken out in 722 by the Syrians and then the southern tribe, uh, actually it says that they became more wicked than the northern tribe who was wiped out, which is crazy to think about. And Judah becomes more wicked and then they are wiped out by the Babylonians. And it's interesting because you have these, these temple periods and you have the covenant people of God, right? Sometimes things are good. Uh, I mean, most of the kings are pretty bad, but sometimes things are good. But the covenant people of God, it, it, it just was very different than what we have today. And that's, that's actually the promise in Jeremiah, uh, the promise of a new covenant, a covenant to be different and, it, and it's, it's really interesting because when the second temple actually comes, there are some that are alive at the same time uh, when the first temple was around. The temple was glorious when Solomon made it. It was amazing. And the people are pretty excited about this new temple, right? But the, the, the people that were there when they seen and the old temple was alive, they're actually brokenhearted and they're weeping, Right? They're, they're sad. This is nothing like it. And we're actually told that this second temple was actually supposed to be more glorious than the first. 
So why are they crying? What's going on? That's because that temple was not simply because it looked good on the outside. The fact is, is that the God-man, Jesus, was going to come and step into that temple. That's why the second temple is more glorious, even though it's cried at when it's looked at in comparison, because the Messiah was going to come, because God was looking for a bride all that time. He was coming for a bride. And in fact, that's what brings us back to the woman at the well, because what did he tell her? That God was searching for people that would worship him in spirit and truth. So the bride, the bridegroom, all the glories that we are going to have, it's not because of some covenant. Praise God, he offers as a covenant. But it's God's love that he offers that to us. And he was going to get a bride for him that would worship in spirit and truth. God could very easily had simply made us like a tree that does exactly what it's supposed to do. In fact, Isaiah compares and said, you guys are worse than trees and donkeys. They do what you tell them to do. You guys don't even do that. It could have easily made us that way. But that's not what God desired. God desires the same thing so many of us desire, and that's to have true love, to have somebody that chooses to love us. And that's the beauty. That's the beauty of looking at the bride as the bride, looking at the bridegroom, knowing that For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That while we were yet criminals, the Christ died for us. That's the beauty of having and looking at the beauty of the cross, recognizing that God was getting himself a bride. All of those who would worship him in spirit and truth would not simply have their sins covered by the blood of bulls and so forth, but that we would have our sins to telesty paid in full, and when we come to him, he sees not simply our sin and judges our good from our bad, but on the judgment day, he sees his son Jesus. And one day, at the new heavens and the new earth, he will wipe away every tear. And guess what? Philippians 2 actually tells us, and I'll finish on, on this verse, the hymn of Christ, one of the early, the Carmen Christi, one of the earliest hymns that we have and that comes right in Philippians chapter two, and it's also in the context of making it, calling us to be humble. But that Christ, that Jesus Christ, even though he dwelled in the very form of God, did not find equality with God, something to be grasped, but took on the form of a man. And you know what it says? Not only did he die, made himself a little lower than the angels, not only did he die, but he died to death on a cross. But then it says that every knee shall bow every tongue will confess. One of the things that I think about, even when I'm witnessing and you deal with blasphemers and somebody was taking pictures of the bus, the Blessed Hope Chapel bus, and saying, I'm gonna send this to all the Satanists so they know to put curses on you while we were out there witnessing and stuff. And when I think about all that, you know, ultimately if they don't come to Christ, you know, it's not because his arms are too short to save, right? They're not. But ultimately I think about whether if you, if they were more big, it was more popular when I was first saved, but guys like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and, and these guys that have been so blasphemous, I think that they're gonna look at Jesus in all his glory and even though it'll be too late for them, they will still bow their knee because of how awesome he is. And that's my Jesus and I am his bride, you are his bride and he is our bridegroom. 
You guys can stand and we're going to pray together if that's cool with you guys.